the faults of George Saunders. Morse found it nerve-wracking to cross the St. Jude's school grounds just as school was being dismissed because he felt that if he smiled at the uniformed Catholic children they might think he was a wacko or a pervert and that if he didn't smile they might think he was an old grouch made bitter by the world which surely, he felt, by certain yardsticks, he was. Sometimes he wasn't entirely sure that he wasn't even a wacko of sorts although certainly he wasn't a pervert, of that he was certain, or relatively certain. Being overly certain, he was relatively sure, was what eventually made one a wacko. So humility was the thing, he thought, arranging his face into what he thought would pass for the expression of a man thinking fondly of his own youth, a face devoid of wackiness and perversion, humility was the thing. The school sat among maples on a hillside that sloped down to the wide river Tagnac, which narrowed and picked up speed and crashed over Bryce Falls a mile downstream, near Morse's small rental house. His embarrassingly small rental house, actually, which nevertheless was the best he could do and for which he knew he should be grateful, although at times he wasn't a bit grateful and wondered where he'd gone wrong, although at other times he was quite pleased with the crooked little blue shack covered with peeling lead paint and felt great pity for the poor stiffs renting hazardous shitholes even smaller than his hazardous shithole, which he now felt was how, yeah, which was how he felt now as he came into the bright sunlight and continued his pleasant walk home along the green river lined with expensive mansions whose owners he deeply resented. Morse was tall and thin and as grey and sepulchral as the church about to be condemned. His pants were too short and his face periodically broke into a tense, involuntary grin that quickly receded as if he had just suffered a sharp pain. At work he was known to punctuate his conversations with brief, wild laughs and gusts of inchoate enthusiasm and subsequent embarrassment, expressed by a sudden plunging of the hands into his pockets after which he would yank his hands out of his pockets, too ashamed of his own shame to stand there, merely grimacing for even an instant longer. From behind him on the path came a series of arrhythmic whacking steps. He glanced back to find Aldo Cummings, an odd duck who, though nearly 40, still lived with his mother. Cummings didn't work and had his bangs cut straight across and wore gym shorts even in the dead of winter. Morse hoped Cummings wouldn't collar him, when Cummings didn't call him, and in fact passed by without even returning his nervous, self-effacing grin, Morse felt guilty for having suspected Cummings of wanting to call him, then miffed that Cummings, who collared even the City Hall cleaning staff, hadn't tried to collar him. Had he done something to offend Cummings? It worried him that Cummings might not like him, and it worried him that he was worried about whether or not like Cummings liked him. Was he some kind of worrywart? It worried him. Why should he be worried when all he was doing was going home to enjoy his beautiful children without a care in the world? Although, on the other hand, there was Robert's piano recital, which was sure to be a disaster since Robert never practiced and they had no piano, and they weren't even sure where or when the recital was, and Annie, God bless her, had eaten the cardboard keyboard he'd made for Robert to practice on. When he got home, he would make Robert a new cardboard keyboard and beg him to practice. He might even order him to practice. He might even order him to make his own cardboard keyboard, then practice, although this was unlikely, because when he became forced with Robert, Robert blubbered, and Morse loved Robert so much that he couldn't stand to see him blubbering, although if he didn't become forced with Robert, Robert tended to lie on his bed with his baseball glove over his face. Good God, but life could be less than easy. Not that he was unaware that it could certainly be a lot worse, but to go about it in such a state, pulse high, red-faced, worried sick that someone would notice how nervous one was, was certainly less than ideal. 
and he felt sure that his body was secreting all kinds of harmful chemicals and that the more he worried about the harmful chemicals, the faster they were pouring out of wherever it was that they came from. When he got home, he would sit on the steps and enjoy a few minutes of scented breathing while reciting his mantra, which was, calm down, calm down, before the kids came running out and grabbed his legs and sometimes even bit him quite hard in their excitement. And Ruth came out to remind him in an angry tone that he wasn't the only one who'd worked all day. And as he walked out, he gazed out at the beautiful Taganyak in an effort to absorb something of its serenity, but instead found himself obsessing about the faulty latch on the gate which theoretically could allow Annie to toddle out of the yard into the river, and he pictured himself weeping on the shore, and to eradicate this thought, he started maniacally whistling the stars and stripes forever while slapping his hands against the sides. Cummings bobbed past the restored gristmill, pleased at having so decisively snubbed Morse, a smug member of the power elite in this conspiratorial village, one of the league of oppressive oppressors who wouldn't know the lot of the struggling artist if a lot of the struggling artists came up with great and beleaguered dignity and bit him on the polyester ass. Over the Pine Street Bridge was a fat cloud. To an interviewer in his head, Cummings said he felt the possible rain made the fine bright day even finer and brighter because of the possibility of its loss. The possibility of its ephemeral loss. The ephemeral loss of the day to the fleeting passages of time. Preening time. Preening nascent time, the blaggard. Time made wastrels of us all, did it not, with its gaunt cheeks and its tombly reverberations and its admonishing glances with bony fingers. Bony fingers pointed as if in admonishment, as if to say, I admonish you to recall your own eventual nascent death, which, being on its way, human is forthcoming. Forthcoming mortal coil, and don't think its ghastly pole won't settle on your furrowed brow pronto once I select your fated number from my very dusty book with this self-same bony finger with which I'm pointing at you now, you vanity of vanities, you luster, you shirker of duties, as you shuffle after your worldly pleasure centers. That was some good stuff, if only he could remember it through the rest of his stroll on the coming storm, to scrawl in a passionate hand on his yellow pad. He thought about, he thought with longing ardor of his blank yellow pad, he thought, he thought with the longing ardour of his blank yellow pad, on which this selfsame day his fate would be wrought, no, on which this selfsame day the first meagre scrawlings which would presage his nascent burgeoning fame would be wrought, or rather writ, and some day someone would dig up his yellow pad and virtually cry Eureka when they realised what a teeming fragment of minutiae and yet crucial minutiae had been found, and wouldn't all kinds of literary women in short black jeans want to meet him then? In the future, he must always remember to bring his pad everywhere. The town had spent a mint on the riverfront, and now the burbling, smashing Taganyak ran past the nail salon in a restored gristmill and cafe in a former coal tower, and a quaint public square where some high school boys with odd haircuts were trying to kick a soccer ball into the partly open window of a park cult, with a joy so belligerent and obnoxious that it seemed they believed themselves the first boys to ever walk the face of the earth which Morse found worrisome. What if Annie grew up and bore home one of these freaks? Not one of these exact freaks, of course, since they were approximately 15 years her senior, although it was possible that at 20 she could bring home one of these exact freaks, who would then be approximately 35, albeit over Morse's dead body, although he knew in his heart that if he wouldn't make us think about it, even if she did bring home one of the freaky snots who had just succeeded in kicking the ball into the cult, and were now jumping around, joyfully bumping their bare chests together, or grunting like walruses, 
And in fact, he knew perfectly well that rather than expel this 35-year-old freak from his home, he would likely offer him a coffee or a soft drink or something in an attempt to dissuade him from corrupting Annie, who, for God's sake, was just the baby. Because Morse knew very well the kind of man he was at his heart, timid of conflict, conciliatory to a fault, pathetically gullible. And with a pang, he remembered Len Beck, whose senior year had tricked him into painting his ass blue, as if there had actually been a secret blue asses club, if the ass painting had in fact been required for membership. It would have been bad enough, but to find out on the eve of one's prom that one had painted one's ass blue simply for the amusement of a clique of unfeeling swimmers who subsequently supplied certain photographs to one's prom date, that was too much. And he had been glad, quite glad actually, at least at first, when Beck, drunk, had tried and failed to swim to Foley's snag and had been swept over the falls in the dark of night. The great tragedy of their senior year. A tragedy that had mercifully eclipsed Morse's blue ass in the class's collective memory. Two red-headed girls sailed by in a green canoe, drifting with the current. They yelled something to him, and he waved. Had they yelled something insulting? Certainly it was possible. Certainly today's children had little respect for authority, although one had to admit there was always Ben Akbar, their neighbour, the little Pakistani genius who sometimes made Morse look askance at Robert. Ben was an all-state cellist on the wrestling team, and he was unfailingly sweet to smarter kids, and toe-painted and could do a one-handed push-up. Ah, Ben Schmen, Morse thought. Ten Bens weren't worth a single Robert, although he couldn't think of one area in which Robert was superior or even equal to Ben, the little smarty pants. Although he had nothing against Ben, Ben being a mere boy, but if Ben thought for a minute that him being more accomplished and friendly and talented than Robert somehow entitled him to lord over Robert, Ben had another thing coming. Not that Ben had ever actually lorded over Robert. On the contrary, Robert often lorded over Ben, or tried to, although he always failed, because Ben was too sharp to be taken in by a little con man like Robert, and Morse's face reddened at the realization that he had just characterized his own son as a con man. Boy oh boy, could life be a torture. Could life ever force a fellow into a strange, dark place from which he found himself doing graceless, unforgivable things like casting aspersions on his beloved firstborn? If only he could escape Blascorp and do something significant, such as discover a critical vaccine. But it was too late, and he had never been good at biology, and had in fact flunked it twice. But some kind of moment in the sun would certainly not be unwelcome. If only he could be a tortured prisoner of war who not only refused to talk, but led other prisoners in rousing hymns at great personal risk. If only he could witness an actual miracle, or save the president from an assassin, or win the lotto and give it all to charity. If only he could be part of some great historical event like the codgers he saw on PBS who had been slugged in the Haymarket riot, or known Medgar Evers, or lost beatific mothers on the Titanic. His childhood dreams had been so bright, he had hoped for so much, and it couldn't be true that he was a nobody. Although, on the other hand, what kind of somebody spends the best years of his life swearing at a photocopier? Not that he was complaining, not that he was unaware he had plenty to be thankful for. He loved his children. He loved the way Ruth looked in bed by candlelight when he had wedged the laundry basket against the door that wouldn't shut because the house was settling alarmingly. Loved the face she made when he entered her. Loved the way she made light of the blue-ass story, although he didn't particularly love the way she sometimes trotted it out when they were fighting. For example, on the dreadful night when the piano had been repossessed, or the way she blamed their poverty on his passivity within earshot of the kids, or the fact that at the height of her infatuation with Robert's karate instructor, Master Lee, she had been dragging Robert to a class as often as six times a week, the poor little exhausted guy. But the point was, in spite of certain difficulties, he certainly loved Ruth. So what if their bodies were failing and fattening, and then when they undressed in the dark, and Robert 
admired strapping athletes on television while looking askance at Morse's rounded pimpled back. It didn't matter, because someday, when Robert had a rounded pimpled back of his own, he would appreciate his father, who had subjugated his petty personal desires for the good of the family. Although, God willing, Robert would have a decent career by then and could afford to join a gym and see a dermatologist. And Morse stopped in his tracks, wondering what in the world two little girls were doing alone in a canoe, speeding towards the falls, apparently aweless. Cummings walked along, gazing into a mythic, dusty, arboreal wood that put him in mind of an archetypical vision he had numbered 114 in his book of archetypical visions, on which Mum, that nitwit, had reluctantly spilled great pop. Vision 114 concerns standing on the edge of an ancient, dense wood at twilight, with the safe harbour of one's abode behind and the deep wild ahead, replete with dark, fearsome bears looming from albeit dingy covens. What would that twitchy, nervous, wage-slave Morse think if he was to dip his dim brow into the heavy brew that was archetypal visions? Morse. Ha! Cummings thought, I'm glad I'm not Morse. A dullard in corporate pants trudging home to his threadbare brats in the gathering loam, born like the rest of his ilk with their feet of clay thrust down the moor of conventionality, condemned to cheerfully work lemming-like in moribund cubicles while comparing their stocks and bonds between bouts of tedious lawn-mowing, then chortling while holding their suckling brats of the Nintendo breast. That was a powerful image, Cummings thought, one that he might develop some brooding night into a Herculean poem that some Hollywood smoothie would eat like a hotcake, so he could buy Mama Lexus and go with someone leggy and blousy to Paris after taking some time to build up his body with arm curls so as to captivate her physically as well as mentally. And in Paris, the leggy girl, in perhaps tight leather pants, would sit on an old-time bed with a beautiful shawl or blanket around her shoulders and gaze at him with doe eyes as he stood on the balcony, brooding about the Parisian rain and so forth, and wouldn't morse on his ilk stew in considerable juice when he sent home a postcard just to be nice. And wouldn't the village fall before him on repentant knees when t-shirts imprinted with his hard-won visage his heroic, leonine visage, one might say, were available at the five and dime, and he held court on the porch in a white, Whitmanesque suit, while Mom hovered behind him, getting everything wrong about his work and proffering inane snacks to his manifold admirers. And wouldn't revenge be sweet when such former football players such as Ned Wentz began begging him for lessons in the sonnet? And all that was required for these things to come to pass was some paper and pens and a quixotic blathering talent the likes of which would not be seen again soon, the critics would write, all of which he had in spades, and he rounded the last bend before the falls euphoric with his own possibilities, and saw a canoe the colour of summer leaves ran the steep upstream wall of the snag. The girls inside were thrown forward and shrieked with open mouths over frothing waves that would not let them be heard as the boat split open along some kind of seam and began taking on water in doomful fast quantities. Cummings stood stunned, his body electrified, hairs standing up on the back of his craning neck, thinking, I must do something. Their faces are bloody, but what? Such fast, cold water. Still, I must do something. And he stumbled over the berm, uncertainly looking for help, finding only a farm field of tall, dry corn. Morse began to run. In all probability, this was silly. In all probability, the girls were safe on shore. Or, if not, help was already on its way. Although certainly it was possible that the girls were not safe on shore and help was not on its way. And in fact, it was even possible that help that was on its way was him, which was worrisome because he had never been good under pressure. 
and at a crisis often stood mentally debating possible options with his mouth hanging open. Come to think of it, it was possible, even probable, that the boat had already got over the falls or hit the snag. He remembered the crew of the barge Fat Chance, rescued via rope bridge in the early Reagan years. He hoped several sweaty, decisive men were already on the scene and one of them sent, would send him off to make a phone call. Although what if on the way he forgot the phone number and had to go back and ask the sweaty, decisive man to repeat it? And what if his failure got him back to Ruth? And when she was filled with shame and divorced him and forbade him to see the kids who didn't want to see him anyway because he was such a panicky screw-up. This was certainly not positive thinking. This was certainly an example of predestining failure via negativity. Because who could tell? Maybe he would stand in line assisting the decisive men and incur a nasty rope burn and go home with a hero wearing a bandage which might cause Ruth to regard him in a more favorable sexual light and they would stay up all night celebrating his new manhood and exchanging sweet words between bouts of energetic lovemaking. Although what kind of thing was that to be thinking at a time like this with children's lives at stake? He was bad, that was for sure. There wasn't an earnest bone in his body. Other people were simpler and looked at the world with clearer eyes, but he was self-absorbed and insincere and mucked everything up. And he hoped this wasn't one more thing he was destined to muck up, because mucking up a rescue was altogether different to forgetting to mail out the invitations to your son's birthday party, which he had recently done. Although certainly they had spent a small fortune rectifying the situation, stopping just short of putting an actual pony on visa. But the point was, this was serious and he had to bear down. And throwing his thin legs out ahead of him, awkwardly bent at the waist, shirt trails trailing behind and bum knee hurting, he remonstrated with himself to put aside all self-doubt and negativity and prepare to assist the decisive men in whatever way he could once he had rounded the bend and assessed the situation. But when he rounded the bend and assessed the situation, he found no rope bridge or decisive men, only a canoe coming apart at the base of the snag and two small girls in matching sweaters trying to bail with a bait bucket. What to do? This was a shocker. Go for help? Sprint to the outlet mall and call 911 from Knife World? There was no time. The canoe was sinking before his eyes. The girls would be drowned before he reached Route 8. Could one swim to the snag? Certainly one could not. No one ever had. Was he a good swimmer? He was mediocre at best. Therefore he would have to run for help, but running was futile because there was no time. He had just decided that, and swimming was out of the question. Therefore the girls would die. They were basically dead. Although that couldn't be. That was too sad. What would become of the mother who this morning had dressed them in matching sweaters? How would she cope? Soon her girls would be nude and bruised and dead on the table. It was unthinkable. He thought of Robert nude and bruised and dead on the table. What to do? He fiercely wished himself elsewhere. The girls saw him now and with their hands appeared to be trying to explain that they would be dead soon. My God, did they think he was blind? Did they think he was stupid? Was he their father? Did they think he was Christ? They were dead. They were frantic, calling out to him, but they were dead, as dead as the ancient dead, and he was alive. He was needed at home. It was a no-brainer. No one could possibly blame him for this one. And making a low sound of despair in his throat, he kicked off his loafers and threw his long, ugly body out across the water.